This is the ASC podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei, Yale School of Medicine. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally. and welcome to the inaugural ASC podcast. Our topic today is pathway and pitfalls of a successful career in surgical education. And I am uh, thrilled not only because it's our very first podcast, but I'm particularly privileged to introduce our expert today. Uh, we have none other than Dr. Malia Cochran, who is the president-elect of the Association for Surgical Education. Uh, she's currently vice chair of education and professionalism at the University of Utah Department of Surgery. And uh, many of you know Dr. Cochran is a pillar of many of the national societies, and she's incredibly generous with her mentorship. I know that because I've personally benefited from her generosity. Welcome, Amalia. It's great to have you. Thanks, Kevin. I'm really excited to get to do this. Well, let's start off and just have you maybe tell the audience, how did you get interested and how did you, from maybe as a resident, just get to this point as a vice chair and the president-elect of the society? Absolutely. Um, when I started in surgery, went into my residency, one of the things that I knew for sure, even though I was a little misguided in what I thought my subspecialty was going to end up being, was that I wanted surgical education to be an important part of my career. Uh, at that point in time, there weren't a lot of people who were really doing surgical education per se as their primary career focus. Uh, so it didn't occur to me quite yet at that point that that was an option. Uh, but what I did know was that I wanted to be in a place where I got the opportunity to teach and potentially to do education research, and that I wanted that to be at least one of my foci academically and, and from a scholarship standpoint. Um, I feel like I was really lucky because I came along when the time was right for people to start doing that. Uh, and for it actually to be a primary career focus rather than, you know, just a hobby or a sidelight. Because for many years, education was not um, was not viewed as something that was a core scholarly activity for departments of surgery. That has obviously changed a lot, uh, in large part due to hard work by a lot of members of the Association for Surgical Education, uh, to where surgical education is now actually a viable professional pathway. So for me, as a resident, I uh, got involved in teaching and helping with the clerkship as much as I could. And I also, I was the very first resident to do the ASE's uh, Surgical Education Research Fellowship, uh, which I did in the year 2000, 2001, or no, 2001, 2002. And that both fostered some working relationships and absolutely fired up my curiosity about continuing to pursue education research through the rest of my career. The other thing that was important that I did as a resident is one of the real strengths from my standpoint of the ASC has been that historically our committee structure has been opening and it's been incredibly welcoming. And so I started on a committee as a, as a resident. And I showed up and I did the work. And by the time I was a fellow, I was vice chair of one of the committees because I had shown up and done the work. Wow. And, yeah, and so that's one of the things I would really encourage people to look at doing is to make sure that 
you know, it's, it's one thing to join a committee and put that on your CV. It's another to show up and make sure that you have done the things that you committed to doing and that you've done them at a really high level. So that was what started me on my pathway uh, into all of this. And then it's just grown from there with taking on administrative responsibilities within our division and within our department here at Utah, uh, continuing to grow my leadership capacity within the ASE, um, you know, continuing to really strive for excellence in teaching with our students and our residents, continuing to mentor, continuing to do research. What I find in talking to um, leaders in our field, is, like yourself, is that there's always a um, angle of humility when people say, well, I was just at the right place at the right time. But clearly it takes more than just being at the right place at the right time. And um, I, I wonder, when did you identify yourself as a quote-unquote educator? Because I'll tell you, a lot of people that you talk to, they'll just say, well, we don't really know what the surgical educator thing means because teaching is just part of your job. You know, why, why separate it out and make it some sort of a, a title or a special um, skill set? Absolutely. There was um, an article that Ajit Sachdeva and Meryl Dayton and Lee Neumeyer and a bunch of our more senior luminaries in surgical education published clear back in, I think it's 2000 that it came out, that it attempted to start identifying what it means to be a surgical educator for the purposes of uh, scholarship within academic departments of surgery. And that provided some important groundwork for everybody, I think. It's probably something that needs to be redone and updated that I plan on taking on as a project within the next year. But for me, the important differential is, yes, everyone teaches. If you're at an academic center or if you've got trainees in an independent center or a private place, you are still going to be teaching. The important parts that distinguish a surgical teacher from someone who is truly a surgical educator is that the surgical educators are the people who are doing research in education. They are the people that are doing administration in education. And then the other thing that I tend to see that distinguishes the people who um, I would classify as surgical educators over surgical teachers is a more intense drive to develop their knowledge and skill sets around pedagogy and around how to be a better teacher. And I'm not saying that the other folks don't care about being a good teacher. Many of them care deeply about that. But you just see a different level of fundamental drive in people who identify as educators to get better at how we do everything and in finding better ways to do things that they can then share with other people. Uh, what you're describing is um, people who are uh, uh, advancing the science of education. And um, do you feel like formalized additional training in the in the um, context of, say, a master's of education or some additional training is necessary or required? I will admit that my answer on this has probably shifted a little bit in the last five years or so. Um, historically, it wasn't so much that people needed to get a master's degree or a PhD in education in order to succeed in the field. Um, they did need to commit to additional training of some sort, be that attending surgeons as educators, um, you know, participating in uh, academic uh, health science, the educator academies at their institutions, uh, finding ways to become better medical educators both within their institutions through the AAMC, things like that. More and more, you really are seeing people who aspire to leadership roles in uh, surgical education pursuing graduate studies. 
And I wouldn't say that it's a deal breaker to not have a master's in health professions education or teaching or something relevant to medical education, surgical education. I would also say that for someone who's young in the field, if you really want to be competitive, it might be very helpful. I see. So so not necessarily a barrier, although it sounds like as more and more people are choosing the, uh, surgical education or education in general as a career path, that it potentially will become more and more competitive, such that people are looking for uh, master's or, or other graduate degrees. I think that that's true. And if you see job descriptions that are out there, um, a lot of places, they definitely are asking that people, if they don't have a master's degree, have documented career development around teaching and education, be that doing an education research fellowship, something along those lines. So I wanted to get back to your uh, position at the university a little bit. I love the title of your uh, vice chairmanship, which is uh, Vice Chair of Education and Professionalism. And I personally think that those two things go hand in hand. I just Maybe if you could describe uh, for the audience, what does a vice chair of education professionalism do and maybe how you see education professionalism together? Absolutely. This was interesting to me because it was initially a little bit of a point of contention uh, when Sam Finlayson, who's my chair, and I started discussing me becoming the vice chair of education. I was pretty adamant, uh, dug my heels in quite deeply that I wanted the role to be education and professionalism. And at first, he, I'm not going to say he told me that I was crazy, um, <laughs> but there was definitely some reticence there that I sent. And then after he went and thought about it, he came back to me and said, yes, that'll be fine. For me, the basis for putting those things together really goes back to um, a period that's been almost a decade ago where I was witnessing a lot of incredibly highly qualified medical students who would have been absolutely brilliant in surgery, not going into surgery. And their rationale for going into surgery was that they were seeing negative role models and they were looking at people and saying, I don't want to be that. Hmm. And sometimes it was very specifically around professionalism issues and disruptive surgeon behaviors. And other times it was just looking at the chaotic, crazy lifestyle that many of us have and thinking, no, thank you. I'm fine if the lifestyle thing is a barrier for people. I get that. We've all got different priorities on what we want our life away from our career to look like. I am not fine with the idea that people were passing on going into surgery because they saw people who could not play well in the sandbox. That's a huge brain drain for us. And that was what motivated some of the work that I've done around disruptive surgeon behavior. And I got some uh, both amazing and horrific stories from uh, trainees about experiences that they had either personally had or that they had witnessed in terms of behaviors. And that really drove me to commit to trying to actively change culture, not just here at Utah, but across the board. Because what I realized was that the stories I was hearing at Utah were not unique to our institution. These were things that were happening everywhere. And if anything, we're actually a pretty decent culture here. And so if we're struggling with it, that tells me everyone is struggling with it. I would say that when trainees and young faculty look to a person in the position of, say, vice chair of education, um, one, would, one would sometimes assume that the person who's in the position of education would be a great role model for professionalism. Um, I would like to think that most days I get it right. I'm not going to tell you that I never, ever lose my cool and that I don't have bad days. I'm a human being. We all are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I always try and apologize when I screw it up. Um, and, you know, I hold myself every bit as accountable, if not more accountable. Absolutely. You have many roles in the national platform, um, not just education-related, but also as a mentor, particularly in the Association for um, Women Surgeons. And I, I always wondered if, if people want to approach you, for example, or any leadership at these national societies and say, you know, Dr. Cochran, I, I'm interested in a career in surgical education. Are they okay to just approach you? I would say absolutely. Um, and this is something that I really try to foster. Um, I think Twitter's actually been a great platform for helping to foster it um, because I've found that trainees are much less intimidated interacting with more senior surgeons when we have that social media piece in there. And so then when you actually meet each other in person, finally it becomes much more you know, natural, less intimidating for them because they're not thinking, oh my gosh, I'm with this person and I'm totally having a fangirl or fanboy moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because you've already got that existing you know, level of relationship that's out there. I have always said that at meetings, no, don't hesitate to go up to people who you think you have something to learn from um, and introduce yourself. Uh, just you know, say, hi, my name's Kevin Pay. I'm an acute care surgeon at Yale, and I have an interest that I share with you in this, and I would love if we could find some time to get together and talk about this at some point. What I have consistently found is that you are almost never going to get a no. Um, I think that's true with the more senior folks to me, and I know it's very true with people of my generation. Um, it's one of the things that I've also really enjoyed about the Association for Academic Surgery, in all honesty, is because the leadership has always been very approachable leadership um, and people who are really committed to helping foster the next generation because that's what a lot of us, you know, once you get to mid-career, you're not just thinking about your own career development every single day. You know, I tell people I've got tenure now. I'm fine. I don't need to worry about that. But part of my job becomes to try and promote the people who are coming after me and fit, help them figure out what their careers can look like and how they want to do that. And so, I, you know, send an email. Come up and say hi. Um, if you've got someone who can make the connection and do the introduction for you, that always makes it, you know, 5% less awkward. <laughs> because it definitely can be awkward at first. Um, but what you find is that even amongst the giants, many of them are just really approachable, down-to-earth, normal human beings. You know, I, examples that I would use within the College of Surgeons right now, Courtney Townsend was my chair when I was a Burn Fellow. He is a delightful person. You know, someone who's really curious about how to develop junior faculty and has done a tremendous job of that over his lifetime. You know, J. David Richardson is just a genuinely kind man who is his remarkable commitment to junior faculty who have worked with him over the years um, and who continues to want to foster leadership in, in the next generation. And so that's what I, you know, if I want junior people and residents to hear anything, it's that, you know, those of us that have been out here for a while, we care about your career. One of the things that I was hoping to touch upon is, for example, if you had mentioned these giants of surgery, nobody would assume that these people are approachable. And even within the college, um, really, when you think about um, committee work and um, getting to leadership circles, these circles all seem very, very closed. 
And oftentimes it can be very daunting and, and intimidating for a junior person to approach somebody like Dr. Townsend. Absolutely. And I, you know, I always feel like I have an unfair advantage with him because he was chair when I was at Galveston as a fellow. And so I got to know him the year that I was there. And so it's, you know, easy enough for me to, to email him or call him up or, you know, walk up and chit chat about how things are going. Um, You know, that being said, again, all of these folks are approachable. The biggest thing that I would really encourage people to make sure that they do when you're going to ask for the time of someone who you know is uh, a very busy person by definition, not that we aren't all busy, Um, but make sure that you have something specific that you want their help with. Make sure that you have, you know, sort of an agenda, as it were, um, because we are better able to help and better able to support and better able to frame our discussions with you if you can tell us what it is in particular that you are seeking. Fair enough. I think that's great advice. I I wanted to sort of transition to uh, some of the pitfalls for faculty that are trying to develop a career in surgical education, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, So I know there's some interest, and you mentioned it on your blog, in terms of mentorship and uh, the latest uh, JAMA article on the mentorship programs in academic surgery departments. Right. Be, I would love to sort of hear your take on it and um, and sort of the importance of mentorship. Um, so maybe if you can just describe the article a little bit. Absolutely. So there was a recent publication in JAMA Surgery that was essentially just the state of mentoring in academic surgical departments. And if anything, what it served to highlight was the fact that there are huge disparities in terms of the models that are used, the resources that are made available to junior faculty, um, and what people understand about what mentoring in a department of surgery should look like. We don't have a great handle on that. None of us do. and that is something that has been troubling to me for a long time. I um, So going clear back to when I did my SURF project, um, my interest was in mentoring and role modeling in surgery and the impact that those things have. Uh, so again, already looking at the pipeline issue of not scaring people off from being surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been, you know, my entire career has been predicated on either trying to convince us not to eat our young or trying to convince people that we don't eat our young. <laughs> um, so one of the things I'm going to, I'm actually, if it's okay with you, going to give everyone a little bit of a sneak preview on something that I am in the midst of working on. Please. Um, I did some interviews with mid-career and senior faculty a couple of years ago that, um uh, Anyone that does qualitative research knows that it is the slowest process on earth. It makes glacial carving of valleys look speedy. Um, but, But one of the aspects that came out very clearly in these interviews, which were specifically addressing barriers to academic careers, was um, how we can better create a model of effective mentoring in academic surgery. And I was I remember just being so excited as I was reading through these interviews and I realized that this mentoring project, this humongous mentoring project that I've wanted to do for more than a decade, I all of a sudden had the information for. And so in terms of what we were able to identify um, when we did our grounded theory analysis of all of these, uh, I believe there were 15 interviews, 
were um, a few things that really helped us get more focused on what effective mentorship can and should look like as it was defined by these the, the folks that we interviewed. And it was interesting because I actually, um, I will admit I took a bias into these interviews because I was interviewing entirely mid-career and senior women, and so I thought there was going to be some gender-based stuff that came up in here, and there actually was at very little to none that came up. <laughs> So my my bias was violated, which is fine. I was happy to dispense with that bias. But when we broke things down, there were a few things that really came out clearly. Number one was this idea that people have a need for multiple mentors over the course of their career and even at various points in their career. So people would describe having a clinical mentor and a research mentor and a normal life mentor and having people not having the same person to do each of those things and not having the same person to help them with each of those activities. But then also talking about the evolution of mentoring relationships over time where, you know, potentially a mentee can outgrow a mentor and the mentor has kind of done and given them everything that they can and it's time to move along to someone else. Uh, one of the more simplistic explanations that was given was someone was talking about their high school biology teacher who was a phenomenal mentor to them for a lot of years. But, you know, at some point when you're a transplant surgeon, you kind of have outgrown your high school biology teacher as a mentor. Right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, we thought that that model that was very complex was fascinating because nobody's really described anything like that. You know, when you hear people talk about their careers in surgery, that you'll hear somebody say, oh, well, so-and-so was my mentor. And that's not what we got in any of these interviews. And then there were three characteristics that we identified of effective mentoring relationships. One was that as a mentee, for an effective relationship, you're going to be working with someone who is a strategic advisor for you. And so they are able to guide you in terms of career decisions, organizations to join, what your next steps are, those kind of things. Ultimately, as the mentee, you've got to do the work. But a good mentor is going to help you with that strategy piece. And it's not just giving you the strategy piece. It's giving you feedback on the things that you're doing to make sure that they're working and achieving your strategy. And that can be both positive and negative feedback. One of the other characteristics that we identified was that mentors need to be service-oriented, that they are not doing it for glory. They're doing it because they want to help you. And then the last piece was finding a mentor who engages with diverse mentees. And when I say diverse mentees, that actually also took on two different facets. One was um, gender, ethnic, racial diversity. And the other was uh, intellectual diversity. And so the key principle there was valuing people who bring something very different to the table than the mentor has themselves. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, but just to um, to to be clear for the audience, the the um, the subjects for your your study are mid career surgeons. Is that correct? Mid mid career and senior surgeons were describing barriers that they have seen or personally encountered to careers in academic surgery. So, what you've just described is the perfect mentor. I mean, that's that's somebody that we're all looking for, and we all one day aspire to become. Um, so back to the question of pipeline, you know, when you were talking about not scaring students away from surgery, where are these mentors coming from? Because um, clearly, clearly not every department leader is necessarily going to be an effective mentor. 
That is absolutely true. And I think there are a couple of things. Number one is that I am really hopeful, and Lee Neumeyer, who, again, a luminary in surgical education, who has been a fabulous mentor to me in many ways, um, she is a co-author on this project and has been involved with it as well. What we are hoping is that we are actually going to be able to operationalize these concepts that we came up in a way that we can then take them to have formal mentor training programs within departments of surgery so that we're not just throwing people out there and saying, hey, you get to be a mentor, which is sort of what we tend to do with teaching in surgery too. Right. Um, but rather than just throwing people in the pool and telling them to start swimming, we're actually trying to figure out a way to give them water wings <laughs> so that <laughs> they have the support that they need to learn how to do this in a way that will provide meaning to them and that will provide meaning to their mentee. Because I think almost all of us at some point in our career have had a mentoring relationship, either as a mentor or as a mentee, that has been wholly unsatisfying. <laughs> and, and it just becomes a drain on energy for both sides versus, you know, one of the things that we know that mitigates burnout in our profession, which is you know, an increasingly huge topic is doing work that we think has meaning. And so if we can set people up for success as both mentees and mentors and make that meaningful work, then we are doing something that's even bigger for our profession than just helping get the next generation pulled forward. We're getting them pulled forward and we're making them happy. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's beyond important. And I, as a junior faculty member, I can't tell you how important it is for our leadership to recognize the, the importance of faculty wellness, feeling valued and having somebody who's there to look out for your career growth purely for the sake of your career growth. Right. And that, yeah. again, that's what an effective mentor does yeah. is, you know, they are working with you and trying to make you the best professional you that you possibly can be, not out of their own cookie cutter mold, but out of your skill sets and your talents and your interests, which is why we often need multiple mentors. Yes. Yes. <laughs> because the likelihood of finding someone who you want to be a clone of is about zero. But the likelihood yeah. of finding four or five people that you look at and think, yeah, I want to be that part of that person, much easier. Agreed. Agreed. I can't wait to see the, the final product of how, how you plan on operationalizing this. This is going to be fantastic. It's going to be, I mean, that, that's obviously our next step once we get all the revisions done on this thing. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're really excited by it. And again, part of this is just this has been a long-term passion for me, and it's been something I've wanted to work on for the last decade, and I accidentally just tripped into it, which... Um, you know, that's one of the uh, one of the joys sometimes of research is you all of a sudden find you've got something that you totally didn't expect. <laughs> so let me um, if let me switch gears a little bit, and okay. um, I know that you've done some work in terms of biases and barriers, um, particularly as it pertains to gender. But what about the underrepresented or let's say women in surgery? Is a career in surgical education, is that arena less prone to biases and gender um, barriers, do you think? You know, it's sort of interesting because there are people who uh, have argued in the sense that it's been a place where the work has not been considered high-value work. Right. And so it's been easier for underrepresented minorities and women to get traction 
there because it's the stuff that nobody was wanting to do because you weren't paid for it, you weren't recognized for it, it wasn't a big thing. You know, it wasn't like getting a R01. Right. As education becomes a higher value activity, I actually think it's great because you know, so many women and underrepresented minorities already have a toe in the door because we've been doing this work since before it was cool. And so um, that gives us a little bit of an advantage. And, you know, if you look at national surgical organizations, very much to the credit of the ASC, I think the ASC has proportionally had more women presidents than any other major national surgical organization, except, of course, for the Association for Women Surgeons, where the president has to be a woman. Um, so <laughs> so um, I think that there has definitely been a, a lot of good groundwork done for equity. Um, I don't know that that's been an intentional move um, because of the fact that education work was under-recognized and under-compensated. As more departments are diversifying their models of what scholarship looks like and they're finding ways to reward people for the traditionally unrewarded work, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But again, I think a lot of women and underrepresented minorities have an advantage because we've already been sitting at the table for a few years. Very interesting, yeah. So it may it may be a uh, a positive unintended consequence. Exactly. Again, one of those findings that happens. Oh well, that's interesting. <laughs> I have to I have to say though, you know, just anecdotally, this is not based on evidence. That when you ask me who who in your training were great teachers, I have to say that the vast majority of them were women surgeons. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point. And some of it may be because we know for learners that a learning environment is much more effective when it's a collaborative learning environment where they feel like that they can take risks and fail. Sure. And sociology research tells us that women tend to build more collaborative environments. Sure. And therefore, in general, not always, but in general, right. may therefore foster environments where learners are not afraid to fail, where they know that they're not going to get yelled at for it. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, again, not necessarily true across the board, but right. there's definitely some sociology that aligns with the idea that the innate environment created by many women, when they're sort of building their surroundings, would be one that would, would foster really good learning. Yeah, makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, we're we're in the midst of, of course, uh, general surgery residency applications, and uh, I, I have to tell you, one of our one of my uh, most enjoyable interviews was one of the applicants said to me, and when I asked them, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" and they said, um, "They said I'm going to be a dean when I grow up, and a dean of a medical school." You know, and I I thought that was a fantastic answer. But so here's my question for you. Um, there are, um, for people who are interested in this career path, and they're saying to themselves, well, there must be some sort of a ladder that I, I want to climb, and yet administrative positions in within a department of surgery, particularly large academic departments, are limited, right? You have to wait for somebody to leave or retire for somebody else to be up for those positions. What What are some... Um, experiences that you have had, and maybe if you have any advice for people who are interested in administrative positions to maybe one day become a dean, I don't know. <laughs> right. You know, Julie Freischlag or Margaret Dunn would be better qualified to answer this question than I, or 
Thinking about getting into the education pathway, there are a few things. Obviously, when you come straight out of training, you know you are not in a position, and you're, quite frankly, you're not qualified to be a, even an associate program director or uh, necessarily have a major role with clerkships. However, there are always jobs that can be found, and what that may mean is, you know, start where you are. My first move when I started as faculty was um, to completely revamp our curriculum for the burn unit. And to, you know, this was a point in time when none of the curricula for any of the rotations, resident or medical student, were written with very clear goals and objectives that were measurable and ways that things were going to happen. And so I thought, well, gosh, I should do that. That's a really good start. And the thing that was great about that was sort of twofold. Number one was our curriculum within the burn unit became the model for the rest of the Division of General Surgery for all of the rotations because it was structured uh. and organized. And so it got a lot of attention to what I was doing. So if you take on a little project like that, and it doesn't mean you have to go around and, hey, guess what I did, but it's just more, <laughs> you know, the program director is going to see it, the clerkship director is going to see it, and they're going to say, hey, that was some great work that you did. And right. then they're going to start telling the other services, you probably need to go talk to so-and-so because they just, you know, they just did this. And it would be great for your rotation to have that too. The other piece is that sometimes looking outside the department when you are trying to develop your career in education uh, can really be beneficial, and it also helps you with developing collaborations with other individuals in the institution. Uh, two and a half years after I started as faculty, we did a major curricular revamp, and as everyone knows, every medical school in the world does a major curricular revamp about once a decade. Um, right. so, so they, we just the, did ours. <laughs> yeah, the, this is an area that is always ripe with opportunities, especially mm -hmm. for junior faculty. And I was asked to be part of the Curriculum Implementation Committee for that. And I went to my senior partner and said, I've been asked to do this. I would need a remission of some clinical time in order to be able to do it. At that point in time, I was still doing some trauma in addition to my burn work. He, w he was also a burn surgeon. He's now retired. And he looked at me. He said, well, I'm not cutting your burn weeks. I said, so my trauma weeks can go away? <laughs> and he said, yeah, that'd be fine. So, and, you know, there was more to the conversation. He was an outstanding mentor, and so there was a whole lot of discussion around you know, how does this align with your long-term career goals? What do you want this to look like? Why are you right. agreeing to take this on? I mean, he made sure that I was being really thoughtful and deliberate in what I was doing. And I think it helped him to hear that, you know, I looked at him and I said, bottom line is when I get tired of being a clinical surgeon, I want to be a dean. There you go. Wow. So, and, I mean, and I, <laughs> yeah. And I said, so I see this as being, you know, the first baby step in that pathway because it plugs me in at the School of Medicine level. It teaches me how to collaborate with a lot of other people who may or may not have anything at all in common with what I do educationally. I right. just see this as a huge growth experience, and it gets me known to people who need to know who I am. Yeah, I th I, that's that's really practical advice, and I have to say, because I know you wrote a chapter also on sort of using the resources that are available, and particularly your your own institutional resources. Like for example, at Yale, we have a lot of outside of Department of Surgery educa education focused uh, resources, and it wasn't until I sort of stepped out of the department where I started saying, "Wow, there are tons of people on campus who are who are interested in this as a career." Well, 
and I think there's two aspects to that. One is just straight up the resources that are involved. The other is some of the connections and the relationships that let you build. Um, right. Because it can lead to collaborations that you would have never, never otherwise expected. Um, one of the things that me being involved with that did for our department is when one of our junior faculty came to me three years ago and said, hey, I would love for us to have a senior seminar in operative anatomy for the MS force. Great idea. <laughs> there's a little there's a little nugget for you. Yeah. Right. Great and, idea by the way. <laughs> which is a completely brilliant idea. Yeah. And you know, he had the whole course designed and he said, I just don't know who I need to talk to. Mm. And I looked at him and I said, Well, as luck would have it, I've spent a lot of committee time with one of our anatomy education gurus. Let me call him up. Wow. And so, you know, we've now every spring have this absolutely outstanding senior surgical anatomy seminar for our graduating surgery students. Wow, that's that's great. That's great. Mm -hmm. And that's a, you know, again, that is a collaboration that was built entirely by me going outside of my department for a while. It wow. is. And you know, more and more I think we're going to we're, we're going to have to do collaborative interactions like that. And I mean, some of it's just in general, that's where medicine is going. And, and some of it is that's where we need to be taking education. I mean, we talk a lot about interprofessional education at the clinical level, but right. what are the ways that we can be interacting differently with our basic science colleagues, with our preclinical scientists, sure. so that we can optimize what our young surgeons are able to do. Yep. I'm going to ask you a tough question about the academic value of um, education. Yeah. Um, and, that, <laughs> and that is, you know, within our closed community of surgical educators, I think we all agree that uh, clearly education should count for productivity. But um, operationally, it's very difficult. And I, I would suspect that nationally, the most promotion committees and the dean's offices are, are basically looking at your number of publications and your national presence. And, number, you know, I just I would love to hear your opinion about what direction is this going to go? What is it going to take for for our medical schools to, to put some sort of value during the promotion process for education? I love this question because it's actually not as hard of a question as you think it is, oh. <laughs> which is probably a good thing. Um, I think there are a lot of institutions at which it is still really um, a challenging question. Um, there are also a lot of institutions that over the last few years have made a really intensive effort to redefine their retention, promotion, and tenure processes to better recognize those things that, again, have not historically been recognized. And certainly here at the University of Utah, that has happened. Um, we, two years ago, completely redefined what the criteria for, for promotion and tenure look like. And um, that happened to some degree with our career line faculty, but most clearly with our tenure line faculty. And with the tenure line faculty, what the ask now is, is basically they divide it down into the missions that our School of Medicine has and their investigation, education, clinical practice advancement, all of which are supported by administration and service. So these are four areas of accomplishment. And tenure line faculty 
here at our institution are expected to demonstrate excellence in two areas of accomplishment, one of which must be investigation and effectiveness in the rest. So the investigation piece is obviously the public, the scholarship, you know, the durable dissemination outside of institutions in one way or right. another. And there is obviously not the same expectation of research funding for educators that there is for people who are true scientists per se. But for people who have found ways to change practice, to change process, to change methods, um, and have published that, you know, what what they specifically say in our criteria is if you've got peer-reviewed original articles, peer-reviewed durable workshops, dissemination of innovation through commercialization, so that's room for innovation type things, and then other metrics that demonstrate durable dissemination and impact. One of the things I have really pushed with junior faculty is looking at getting things on the MedEd portal because it's moving to being Medline indexed. So right. even though it's always been a peer-reviewed resource, it's now going to be a peer-reviewed PubMed searchable resource for people. Which I think that's going to be huge for our community. That is going to be gigantic because, as you are aware, MedEd portal is different from publishing in academic medicine, say. Yes. Um, because publishing in academic medicine is an incredibly challenging thing to do, um, particularly with their impact factor being what it is. Right. Uh, but then MedEd Portal has this great way of disseminating things that you have done and, you know, creating curricula that can be shared, and that's durable dissemination and impact. So I actually think that what's going on with MedEd Portal is going to be a huge game changer within education and certainly gives people a way to demonstrate excellence in investigation. And what, what do you think, that, that's absolutely true, and what do you think the timeline is for, um, for its indexing and MedLine? The last I heard it was fall of 16. How exciting. So it's so yeah. encourage all the audience members to go and, um, and upload your curriculum, submit it for, for consideration. Yeah. I mean, that this is a great time. And MedEd Portal is something I've always thought is cool. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's this resource that AAMC started. And the reason that I like MedEd Portal is when I am trying to design a learning activity, I can often just go in MedEd Portal and find something and use it rather than having to reinvent the wheel. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's a fabulous teaching resource, <laughs> and that is in addition to being a fabulous resource for dissemination. Absolutely. So, well, Amalia, I know election season is over, um, but Thank you goodness. are out. <laughs> Thank goodness, right. Uh, but you are our president-elect um, of ASE, and I wanted to see if you want to have the opportunity to share your vision uh, for the coming uh, coming year, um, and maybe particularly as it pertains to people who have um, who are looking looking for mentorship um, in a career of surgical uh, surgical education. Absolutely, um, you know, one of the things that I am really going to be laser focused on is around the idea of mentorship and inclusion, and making everyone feel like that ASC is a place for them if they want it to be a place for them. Um, that's something that, as much as we would like to think that all of our organizations are very kind and very welcoming. It's something we need to be deliberate about. Um, and so, you know, making sure that we welcome our new members, making sure that people understand the open committee structure, show up to a committee meeting. That's how you join. It's not hard. 
Um, <laughs> but, you know, really emphasizing the fact that this is an organization that I fell in love with because it was friendly and I felt valued being there, even as a, you know, a third-year resident. Um, and I always love telling people, you know, my surf group that I was in had people like Sherry Wren and John Weigelt in it who are already these very accomplished faculty members. And, you know, I'm sitting there as a little third-year resident. And they never made me feel like I was different. I was just part of our surf group. And that's how I want the ASE experience globally to be for everybody. Um, I'm going to be taking over during a strategic planning year. So I'm actually very excited about that piece because we have been incredibly successful with our last strategic plan for ASE in terms of getting stuff done and moving the organization forward. And this is our chance to determine what we want our next three to five years to look like and what direction is our priority for going next. And so that will be something uh, for everybody to look forward to. It's always a lot of work uh, to get to a strategic plan done, but it is so worthwhile to do it. And our members' energy, because we know everyone's volunteer, and <laughs> um, and our budget on, because we don't want yeah. people to feel like we're bad stewards of their membership dues. Of course. Um, and then for me, the other piece I already actually alluded to a little bit earlier, and that is the 2000 uh, article that came out that was defining what it means to be a surgical educator. You know, we're 16 years out from that. It needs to be updated. And so one of my big things is having us work probably with some folks at the ASA and potentially the SUS on uh, redefining what it means to be a surgical educator so that people who are looking at this as a career pathway actually have something tangible that they can hold up as criteria for their departmental leadership and for their institutional leadership. Because to me, that is one of the greatest services that we can provide is to, A, give our junior members that roadmap so they can say, okay, these are the things I need to be working on, uh, and B, give them the resource that they can take to people who are in positions of power who can then help them use those criteria as grounds for permission. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be an exciting 2017 uh, for the ASE. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think it's such an important topic, and I thank you so much for being um, our inaugural expert. I, I really think that it's going to take leaders like you in the field uh, to continue, number one, elevating the status of a surgical educator, and, and two, uh, in, in line with our topic today, to foster careers for, for people in training and junior faculty. So thank you so much for joining us today. You are very welcome, Kevin. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and I am super excited that I get to be the first. <laughs> Yay! I, I have to give I have to give um, a plug um, to uh, Dr. Cochran's blog at www.amaliacochranmd.com and her Twitter handle. She's a very uh, she's very um, savvy with Twitter. Um, her Twitter handle is Amalia Cochran MD. And uh, for our audience members, don't forget to tune in for the next podcast. And I really look forward to connecting with all of you again soon here at the ASE Podcast. Thanks, everyone. And that wraps up another edition of the ASE Podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the ASE website at www.surgicaleducation.com. 
and be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join ASE and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.